high sticky to breaking down the middle. Here's the lowdown with Low Tide on, on Sports, Sports 1440. Presented by Wolf GMC Buick. We're making it easy. WolfGMCBuick.com. Welcome to the lowdown. Today's show win number 17 in Vegas tonight. Oh, come on. It has to happen. What a great return for the NHL Oiler fans. Wow. This is going to be a rocking evening. It starts at midnight, but hey, you know, tomorrow's only a half day. Oh, God. I'm too old to start games at 8. I just am. Not going to be an easy game for the Oilers. Vegas Golden Knights are good. Aiden Hill is back. Plus, we'll look back 17 years ago. Do you remember the 06-07 Edmonton Oilers? Ryan Smith was traded at the deadline. Peter Sikora was here. Uh, Craig McTavish was the coach. Billy Moores. I still think he's probably the smartest coach they've ever had, unless it's McTavish. Uh, Craig Simpson was also on that roster. Charlie Hottie was a great defensive coach. Alish Hemsky, Sean Horkoff. We'll reminisce today. Looking back at a at a pretty interesting team that a year previous had gone all the way to Game 7 in the Stanley Cup Final and then traded Chris Pronger, and it, well, it didn't go well. The Lowdown is brought to you by Wolf GMC Buick. Hurry in for amazing deal days until February 16th only. 0% financing for up to 60 months on select remaining in-stock 2023 GMC Sierra Half Tons, plus a $5,000 cash discount. Visit wolfgmcbuick.com. You can reach us at sports1440.ca, iHeartRadio, Radio Player Canada, on the podcasts at Apple and Spotify. And Declan tweets them out every day, and he's getting better at it too. Text or call us at 1-833-401-1440, on Twitter, at Low Tide, and at Declan Kruger. Uh, our guest today, we've got a, a, a stunningly good lineup. Scott Wheeler will join us at 1220 from The Athletic. He has the Oilers prospect pool outranked. Uh, 25, I believe. We'll talk to him about why they... I thought that was pretty high, really. We'll talk to him about why and a few other things that people have uh, sent questions in to me for Scott. And that's coming at 1220. At 1240, Willie Ramirez from AP Sports. We'll talk about Vegas Golden Knights. This team, man, I'm telling you, they've got nine lives and they they are moving out players quicker than... There's a time... I'll tell you a story. It's really quick. It, it won't take long. So, 1970, the Buffalo Sabres and Vancouver Canucks come into the National Hockey League. Punch Imlach is the GM of Buffalo. He had been the GM in Toronto previously. Very successful general manager. And they won four cups in the 60s. And he didn't have any good players. So what he did was, anybody who was on the waiver wire... Anybody who was on the waiver wire, they'd pick him up. If there was three guys in a week, they'd take three guys. And they'd drop two. And the NHL was mad as hell about it. And I think they eventually legislated that ability out of things. I don't think you can do that anymore. But that's what they did. And the Buffalo Sabres, early, they got guys like Rene Robert. They were doing really well with waivers. And the NHL said, well, enough of that noise. We're Stop that now. And... But that was the last time I remember an organization have so much movement. Off-season, in-season, Vegas Golden, they don't care. You know, we could get this really good guy if we just offed our goaltender. And then they do. And they send him to whoever they can. They give you six picks. It's all good. They still have young talent. They're, they are absolutely the most aggressive procurement team in NHL history. And I'm, I, you think I'm making that up. I know NHL history. I live in the past. 
I'm there every day. Vegas Golden Knights won a Stanley Cup by being relentless. You know how you, like, I, I won my rotisserie league twice by always being aware of what was going on in the league. I'd call everybody up every week, ask them. Every week I'd call them. I probably spent 40 hours a week just talking to them. I'd want to know where they were. Hey, what up with that Wolders? Is he going to be the closer? Maybe you should trade him to me. And that's what the Vegas Golden Knights do. They're, they lost a defenseman the other day to Calgary on waivers. It, 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 that's nothing. That's hitting a bump on the back and out of the driveway. They'll do 10 things before the deadline. They are absolutely transaction mad in Vegas. And it makes them more interesting, I have to say. I wonder if the new GM in Edmonton will be like that. We'll talk to Daniel Nugent-Bowman today at The Athletic about the Oilers. They hit the ground running. He did a survey. I don't know if you saw it or not. We're going to talk about it. Oiler players talking about who did what and who did where. I found out that my, my doppelganger, my comparable, is James Hamblin. And we'll talk to Daniel about that today. How old were you 17 years ago? Two? 17 years ago? I would have been like eight, nine. Okay. Eight, actually. Do you remember anything about the 06, 07 Edmonton Oilers? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Oh, actually, 06, 07. Sorry, in my mind went to 0506. Right. The o- yeah, of course. They they traded Pronger in that summer yes. and they had no defense. I definitely so, remember that. The yeah. o- 0607 is a little fuzzy though. Yeah, well, because it wasn't a very good team. They lost a lot. They they lost uh, 43 games and won 32. Ryan Smith was traded at the deadline. Remember that where he was crying and it was all over $100,000 and the Otters got... Was it would Kevin Lowe say four assets or whatever it was and they turned out to be not no disrespect to the players, but... It wasn't a fair trade. The Oilers didn't do well. I remember weirdly thinking like that was end of days for the Oilers because obviously I was very young and he was synonymous with the club. And when he got traded, I was like, oh, my goodness, like, is this team going to fold now? Like, what happens? Like Ryan Smith and Ryan Smith as the, you know, Oiler, the 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 synonymous Oiler, he was gone. And all of a sudden I was like, what does this mean for the team? What like what's going on here? I remember he, you know, Ryan Smith is is. He's the perfect example of what happened wrong in the decade plus of darkness. And I'm going to say this because I watched this happen in real time and it was it was just, you know, it was just mean. The world was being mean one day and that's what happened. The world was being mean one day and they picked on Ryan Smith and I had to endure it. Okay, so Ryan Smith leaves Edmonton. He goes to the Islanders, then he goes to Colorado, and then he goes to L.A., uh, in the offseason, I believe, in 2009, traded for Tom Pricing, Kyle Quinsky, and a pick. And then, you know, he goes to L.A., and L.A. is pretty good around that time. In 2010-11, they lost in the first round. And that summer, I mean, I don't know if he got himself traded, but he, he, he got himself traded to Edmonton that summer. For, remember for Colin Fraser and a seventh-round pick, and there was a big problem about Colin Fraser and injury and all that. Anyway, he gets himself traded in time for the 11-12 season, which he played and played well in Edmonton. Guess what L.A. did in 2011-12? They won Stanley. They won the damn Stanley. If he had stayed there, they would have because Sutter would have loved him, they would have won the Stanley Cup with Ryan Smith. His name would etch there. He loved the Edmonton Oilers so much that he gave up his only begotten Stanley Cup. That's what the decade of darkness was like. Everything that could go wrong did go wrong. What has have drafted a really good player named Linus Omark? His first name is Linus. It rhymes with something else, but we can't say that.
because he never really got a chance here because he came a year too late. Why did he come a year too late? Because he did. And then when he came here, they had Hall and Eberle and Pyarvi, and he got lost in the flood. That was the orders that decade. Every damn time. 2011, Steve Tambellini says, you know, we're going to spend in free agency. And they did. But they didn't get anybody good enough. Eric Belanger, Cam Barker. Darcy Hordachuk was very good at his job, but it just wasn't a, a full-time important job. Ben Eager got concussed by Kirill Tulipov, which is another... St- God, take me now, Jesus. F- the whole decade was like that. There was... The, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. I remember when T basically gave a speech where, you know, people said he got fired, but I think he just fired the orders. And his speech was... His speech was... I was too long at the fair. That's was like that was his speech. I've been here a decade. I'm too long at the fair. I got to go. And he did. But the Oilers didn't get better. In fact, I don't think they got better until McTee got back here and he had two really good drafts, 2013 and 14. Uh, Nurse and Drysidel were the key drafted players in that in that two two year window and it, it it really set them up well for the Connor McDavid draft. And since then, they've done well in some some areas. Like Evan Bouchard is a really nice pick. Stuart Skinner is a really nice pick. Um, Ryan McLeod is a very nice pick. And I think Dylan Holloway will be too. Well, they, they, they've they traded a lot of picks, folks, over many, many years. And they've also traded young players like Ethan Bear and Caleb Jones, maybe before they reach their full you know potential. Anyway, I think we can say goodbye to the decade plus of darkness. We can look back on Ryan Smith's wonderful career with pride if you're an Oilers fan but there was a lot of missed opportunities along the way and as much as people used to say awful things about Kevin Lowe and Craig McTavish I think history recalls that they did a pretty damn good job considering all the things that were going on I think they did a pretty damn good job the lineup is going to be basically the same the top line is the top line. The top pairings are the top pairings. Leon's going to be playing with his usual group. Perry will be playing third line with the two fast, fast, fast trains, Holloway and McLeod. I can't wait to see that line again. They look good in the first game, but then we had to wait like 50, days. Trade deadline coming up. I don't know, man. I think they got to go for it. I really do. I think if you're Ken Holland, you know, you you get your lucky, lucky rabbit's foot. You take your loony or toony from wherever that was. You get your your best vacuum cleaner, and you just you put them all together on your desk, and you make a deal. You got to go get the guy. You got to go get Jake Gensel or whoever it is. Get him, man. Because this is going to be a war of attrition, but the Oilers are really well positioned. And one of the reasons they're well positioned People go, okay, well, they, they, they had a tough start, and they fired the coach, and the coach is the reason they're better. Okay, that's probably part of it. And then people will say, well, you know, Stuart Skinner finally figured out, and that probably is part of it. And then they say, well, you know what, uh, Dylan Holloway finally arriving. That, that's really good, and probably that's true. And they have better depth, there's no doubt. They've been able to sign a bunch of guys. You know, um, Sam Gagne's here, Corey Perry's here, Connor Brown's here. Now, not all of them are doing brilliant stuff, but they might in the playoffs, and they're veteran guys, and chances are Connor Brown will do something you love between now and June. But I'm going to suggest to you that fear is a factor. Wasn't there a show called Fear Factor? There was. It was hosted by Joe Rogan, actually. Okay. Funny enough. I, I, I just think that we're, 
when we talk, we always have to hang things on something that we can put our arms around, you know, like that couple did with Connor McDavid at the airport. But I think that fear is a thing. It's palpable. You can feel it. And I think that the, the fear of failure for guys like Connor McDavid, Leon Dreisaitl on the top end of this roster, I just put a, I think it put a charge in them. It was early enough in the year to recover, and they have. And now every time they get to the brink of some bad news happening, I think that fear, that bile, I'm sorry, but that bile on the back is just going to come up and go, okay, wait a minute, I know what this looks like. I'm not. I'm not doing this. I'm not going back to the prison of being a team that went 2-9-1. We're not allowing that. There's real desire there, but I think it comes a little bit at least from fear. I rarely, I try not to, even though I pontificate all day long, I try not to draw attention to myself as being right. And I'm going to break that rule today. Chris Knobloch talked at at length yesterday about, you know, people are talking man-to-man, they're talking to coverage, they're talking about zone. And he said the word execution. And if you'll recall, all during the offseason last year, people were writing articles about, oh, they got to do this, they got to do that. And they should have been playing McLeod up there instead of abuse. It's execution. And don't rely on small sample sizes to make sweeping changes because I sincerely believe one of the reasons that Jay Woodcroft got fired was he changed, he tweaked the system that he had, and it didn't work. But people get stubborn on things. God knows I do. The The new coaching staff does have a new system. It is a different system. You can tell they, they're more aggressive on the penalty kill. They slide things up the middle of the ice. They do things that are different. But it is execution. They will play man-to-man sometimes. They will play zone sometimes. And when people figure out how to offset what they're doing now, they'll figure out another way to MacGyver a better solution. These players aren't dumb. They can play the game. Have to execute. And that's the big difference. Okay. Super Bowl. Really quickly, who's going to win the Super Bowl? I say Chiefs. What do you say? Chiefs. Okay. Uh, Blue Bombers have signed Brady Oliveira. His free agency is over. That was the big one. Although your Rough Riders are signing people left, right, and center. Whoo, they're signing everybody. Don't they know there's a cap down there? What oh the my hell, goodness. man? Well, listen, I'll tell you, the boosters in Saskatchewan, which is, you know, funny enough, the whole province, they're oh. going to pay for it. They'll break out the checkbooks to get this one done. You never have to tell me about Rough Rider fans. I am tell- I always slept with one eye open in Regina because I wasn't a Rough Rider fan, and I did it wisely. All right, on the way, we've got a very busy show. Willie Ramirez from AP Sports at 1240, 120 today, Daniel Nugent-Bowman from The Athletic, and up next, Scott Wheeler from The Athletic. We're going to talk Oilers prospects and why he likes them more than I thought he would. Lowdown with Low Tide on Sports 1440. It's the Lowdown on Sports 1440, brought to you by Wolf GMC Buick. Visit wolfgmcbuick.com. And we remember, rest in peace, Toby Keith, who passed away from cancer today. I, I used to hear a phrase every day, something cancer, and I go, yeah. But when it impacts you, then you really know what it means to say that. And now I do, but not on the radio. Joined now by our friend Scott Wheeler from The Athletic, who does a brilliant job of uh, covering prospects and doing draft work, and we love him for it. Scott, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. So I I have to admit, I'm surprised that the Oilers weren't listed by you before today uh, as you tracked down the uh, top 32 backwards of uh, prospect pools. The Oilers did did pretty darn well considering how much isn't there and how much has been traded away. 
Yeah, 25th out of 32 was sort of the the final landing spot for them. I do mention at the very top of their prospect pool ranking before I get into the individual reports on their top 13 prospects. I do mention that I did debate ranking them a little bit lower. Uh, They were in consideration for sort of 26, 27, 28 rather than 25. Uh, definitely one of the weaker pools in the league. I think had they graduated Dylan Hallway and Philip Broberg, uh, which I think most by now expected that both of those guys would be, if not full-time NHLers, then uh, sort of more established than they have been to this point. Uh, it, had they lost those guys, had they graduated them to sort of full-time NHL status, it would have been a 32 or 31 ranked school in the league, right? So yeah. uh, they 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 benefit a little, ironically, in terms of this countdown. They benefit a little by virtue of actually not having successfully moved those guys along yet. And they're obviously both sort of 21, 22 years old. Uh, the clock is starting to tick on them to make that jump. Uh, you have to be U23 to be eligible for my list, which both of them narrowly are. Um, but it's a, it's a list that after those two guys, there's, there's not a lot coming for the Oilers at the moment. And they've got work to do to sort of rebuild the, rebuild the farm system, if you will. Scott, I know that you don't, you know, specifically tailor your lists for the general manager of each team. It's a list based on talent. But one thing I've noticed about the Ken Holland era is that he, like he talked about over-ripening or slow-playing guys in his first media avail when he came here in 2019, and we really saw it with Evan Bouchard. So mm-hmm. w- when you're evaluating a player like Bouchard as he developed, and obviously he's an impact player now, but Holloway and Broberg, uh, is it more difficult because they seem to be over-ripening and seem to be behind, even though that may not be the case? Is it more difficult to evaluate them? Yeah, that's certainly a part of the conversation in terms of the different treatment that teams give. Uh, had they been in a different situation, had they not been uh, drafted into an organization that has since become uh, a Stanley Cup contender and that's pushing to put their best lineup on the ice every night, if they were playing in Anaheim or San Jose, would their opportunities look different? The answer is obvious. The answer is clearly yes. Uh, so in that case, they they would have been graduated elsewhere. And we all know uh, the, the the man in charge of the Edmonton Oilers this year, dating back to his Detroit days, certainly in in, in Ken Holland, certainly has a reputation that way. Uh, they, the Red Wings in particular were one of the very first teams to really, really stress taking your time, uh, just not bringing kids along when other teams would have, not, not getting overly excited about your kids, that kind of a thing. Uh, we've seen it play out uh, similarly with Raphael Lavoie as well. Lavoie is not eligible for the list now that he's turned 23. I believe he turned 23 back in September, uh, so no longer eligible as a prospect. But Oilers fans are starting to get uh, sort of introduced to Raphael at the age of 23 as he's been called up recently and played some games with the NHL club and that kind of a thing. So um, all of that is is a part of the process with the Oilers, and their process maybe looks a little bit different than the processes of of other teams. And I think that's certainly been a factor for, uh, for Broberg in particular. I think when you have a, a sort of long-term plan for these players and you do uh, operate with some of the patients that Ken Holland and company operate with, you also have to be careful not to lose these kids, uh, especially if you're a top 10 pick in Broberg's case. And uh, you believe as Broberg does that you're ready to, to make the jump and you're ready to play those minutes. It, it's a, it's a balancing act of, preaching the long game with them, uh, still getting them opportunities and not losing them in terms of their want and desire to be a part of your organization long-term. So 
Uh, obviously, with with Broberg and and talk of trade requests and that kind of thing, maybe that has has happened. Uh, maybe their patience and and also him not coming along maybe as quickly as they would have hoped has has played a part in a little bit of a chasm that's developed between him and the organization. Uh, but that's that's part of the process, both for the Oilers and for Broberg, and they've got to figure out where each side lands in terms of what's next. Sports 1440, Scott Wheeler, our guest from The Athletic, talking about the Edmonton Oilers prospect list, which dropped today, uh, and is higher than we thought. I I was so interested. I raced to, I always click on your stuff, and I raced to this one because I wanted to see where you had Xavier Burgo uh, ranked. I love him on the penalty kill. I think he's a very effective power play guy, wonderful passer, uh, and I think he has developed as a two-way player in the AHL. But the even strength scoring doesn't appear to be there. At least math tells us it isn't. Um, you clearly still like this guy. Uh, what do you like about him? Yeah, I do. I, I've still got a, a belief in in Xavier that he's going to figure it out and the pieces are going to come together. He's got the frame. He's got work to do to get it a little bit stronger and to sort of add some strength over pucks, which I think has impacted his ability to play off the cycle and make plays against bigger, stronger defensemen at the pro level. Uh, certainly relative to he did to the way that he made plays uh, in the sort of final years of his junior career where he was one of the most productive players in the QMJHL. Um, it's been a bit of a tough go for him, uh, not just in terms of getting to the inside and creating looks for himself, but also even his playmaking game, which was such a natural feel for him at lower levels, uh, just hasn't felt and looked as as easy and comfortable as it did. He looks like he's overthinking it at times. There's been, I think, a bit of a crisis of confidence there at times where he just doesn't look like himself or he's not executing and playing with the confidence that you'd like to see out of a player like that, a first-round pick who's been productive and been a star player all the way up, was early into the QMJHL because of his birthday and played a long time at that level and became a dominant, dominant offensive player at that level, all of those things. Uh, Obviously, as you mentioned, he's got special teams upside on both special teams. There is still real skill there. His ability to handle the puck and play make and facilitate for his line mates and uh, some some finesse to his touch and his feel on the puck. Uh, It's just got to become a little bit more consistent and he's got to find ways to do it and to get to the front of the net and to score a little bit more. Uh, He's always going to be able to get his line mates involved, but he needs to not be selfish, but uh, he, he needs to look for his own looks and get and find ways to get his own looks a little bit more at that level. So uh, there's still work to be done there. He's got steps that he needs to take. I think I would say that, frankly, about a lot of the Bakersfield Condor uh, forwards, if you will. Players like Carter Savoy haven't really clicked there. They haven't had Matt Petrov hasn't sort of taken the step yet there. There there have been a few of their young guys, players who were extremely productive, top of their league, whether it's Savoy in NCAA, Petrov recently in the OHL. Um, they, they haven't taken the steps that those players who are as productive as they are typically do uh, in the AHL in their first year, two, three years. Uh, so that they've got to figure that out. Maybe a part of that is the way that they're being developed and used by the coaching staff with Bakersfield. Maybe a part of it is drafting players whose games don't translate quite as well at the pro level as they did at lower levels. Um, there are there are questions to be asked there, but I do think, at least in Borgo's case, he's the one I'm most confident in uh, will figure it out. Like he, He's going to get there. He's going to be a very productive player at the AHL level. He's going to get a call up someday. I, I, still, I still really believe in that. 
I know you considered, you mentioned that you considered Max Warner. Uh, it's a tribute to Oiler fans, even in a year where their uh, parent team is pushing for the cup, where they're asking me, why does Scott Wheeler hate Max Warner? I know you don't, but I knew you considered him. What What does he need to do maybe to, to uh, profile more as a future NHL player? Yeah, he, he's a player that I think the Oilers are higher on than I am. Um, certainly there was questions of off-ice conduct in his suspension in the WHL a year ago. Uh, I, I do care about that kind of stuff, and I try to factor it into the way that I evaluate these kids. Uh, beyond that, he's obviously taken a step. They obviously felt confident enough uh, in, in sort of his behavior and his maturity and the way that he'd grown from that experience to sign him, to bring him into their, their organization, um, they, they, to play him with the AHL team as a 20-year-old rookie. Ultimately, at the end of the day, this is still a seventh-round pick. This is still a kid who was a, a very good two-way defenseman, uh, and especially defensively in the WHL, but I never would have called him one of the five, ten best defensemen in that league. Uh, certainly, he was relied upon like that. He played big minutes at that level. Uh, this year, in watching him, when I've watched him with Bakersfield, I think he's been fine uh, in terms of managing the defensive assignments. He's a six-foot-three kid he's he's worked hard to sort of fill out his frame he's a good athlete he skates decently well uh there is some appeal there in terms of the makeup of his game i don't think there's much offense there i'm not sure whether he's ever going to be particularly productive even in the ahl uh, let alone the nhl as a result you're probably looking at a pretty limited sort of number six number seven defensively oriented uh, defenseman who can kind of hang at even strength and maybe help out on your second penalty kill. I think that's ultimately the ceiling for Maximus. Uh, certainly that's a ceiling that's comparable to some of the players who did make the list. Uh, certainly if he gets there, he'll end up being a better player uh, than, than many of the players who are on the list because the majority of the kids who did make the 13 players that I decided to list uh, aren't going to make it. Uh, but I do still have have some question marks about him and his game, and I just wasn't confident enough that he's that the defense will rise above and that he will get uh, get to that sort of depth defenseman role in the NHL. Now, he Water is not like the the prototype modern uh, puck moving, good mobility, speed defenseman. Bo Aiky is. He's was injured early in the year and lost the season. But in terms of of potential he really does have a lot to offer fair yeah Bo's a Bo's a really really interesting prospect it's a bummer that the way this season played out because he had such a good he left such a good first impression on the Oilers I spoke with the Oilers brass for a story I did on him at the start of this season and uh, they were really really high on him and the way that he performed not just in his first rookie camp and and sort of uh, rookie tournament uh in Penticton, but also into into his first main camp, hung around a little bit longer than 18-year-old defensemen typically do, got into a game, uh, showed fairly well in that game. All of that was positive. Then he goes back, he gets sick, he blocks a shot, breaks his nose, he blocks a shot off of his ankle, hurts his ankle, and then he's got a season-ending ending, uh, shoulder injury that he's got to deal with. So it's been a, a difficult go for him, and then the lost time does impact a player at that age. When you lose three-quarters of a season, it is it is tough to, to bounce back from. But he skates. He's a beautiful, beautiful sort of flowing skater. He's competitive enough. He's got enough size. He's a good athlete. 
He's a, a very smart defenseman in terms of managing the puck and managing the game. He's very, uh, he does a good job sort of picking his spots on when to attack and when to use his skating. He's really learned to how to balance that better. They've tried to turn him into a really high-end defender because of his skating in Barry, the coaching staff in Barry, uh, and speaking with Marty Williamson in the group there, they've worked very hard on him to to add sort of a high-end defensive element to his game, knowing that even if he's sacrificing a bit of offense at the OHL level, that it'll be better for him in the long term. I think they recognize that he could actually, both last year had Brant Clark not returned, uh, and this year at the start of the year, had he played a bit of a different style, he could have been even more productive than he has been at, at both of those le- sort of levels across the last two seasons. So there's a, there's a lot to like about him. I still think he gets back next year and he puts himself in the conversation uh, for the Canadian World Junior team in Ottawa for the 2025 World Juniors next year. Uh, he won't be a lock to make that team. There are three or four defensemen that you can already pencil into that team, and he's not one of them. But I think there's a really good opportunity that he's a fifth or sixth defenseman on that team if he plays well next fall. So uh, some, some good check points for him, to some boxes for him to still check and, and some runway for him to take advantage of. Obviously, the lost season this year is, is really disappointing. But uh, with the skating and the way that he sees and, and understands the game, there might be something there long term. Uh, two more questions. One on the 2024 draft. Oilers likely to pick in the 20s. Oilers fans want him to pick 32, but likely that, that pick will be gone. How deep and good is this draft, and how valuable would that pick be if the Oilers send it away? Well, it's hard to measure this draft because last year is always in the back of your head, and last year, 2023 and 2015, really in my 10, 11 years of doing this now, are the two best drafts that I've ever scouted. Uh, so you, you've got that comparison in the back of your head. This draft is not, not 2023, not at the top and, and certainly not even in the depth as well. So uh, when putting together my list for this year's draft, I've really hit a bit of a wall at about 12 on my list. And then another wall really uh, right early, earlier on in the first round that I'd like it to be in terms of the, the sort of 21, 22 range. The typical draft, there's 24, 25, 26 kids that I'm confident as, as first rounders, maybe never a full 32 that I'm sure about in terms of first round prospects. This draft is an even smaller number than that. Um, so it's, it's not a very deep draft. It is a strong draft if you're looking for help on the blue line. You're going to see depth on, on defense right through the first two or three rounds of this draft. Uh, I, I suspect that you'll see six defensemen taken in, in that group of 12 that I talked about right at the top of the draft. But even beyond those six defensemen, once those premium guys are gone and teams start to grab forwards, there are going to be other defensemen in this draft that linger, uh, very solid sort of projectable defensemen. Uh, so that that piece of this draft is a strength. I wouldn't say at forward or in net that it's a particularly strong draft, especially once you get past Macklin, Celebrini, Cole Eisenman, and Ivan Demidov, who are kind of the the three forward prospects at the very top. Uh, certainly the WHL's Caden Lindstrom of Medicine Hat has joined that group, uh, but it's not uh, not a super, super strong draft for sure at, at forward. Okay, final question. It's not a trick question. The The proper answer might be, I can't think of any team, but I've always wondered because the, the math, Scott Cullen used to do it. Brian Bader has an item out today. The math is if you're picking top five, chances are you've got a good chance to get a star. If you're picking first round, you're going to probably get an NHLer uh, for at least a little bit, but but not necessarily somebody that you'd expect to be in the top you know, six or top four. 
uh, forward and defense, respectively. Um, and so my question for you is, are there teams who consistently beat the system or is it just luck and randomness that we're looking at over many years? Because I, I feel like it's luck and randomness, but maybe I'm wrong. There are definitely teams that I think do a better job than others. Uh, I think Judd Brackett has done a really nice job in Minnesota since he took over. I think Mike Donaghy, the director of scouting with the Chicago Blackhawks, has done a really good job with the glut of picks that Kyle Davidson has acquired for him over the last couple of years. Uh, I've always sort of drafted uh, fairly close in line with the Los Angeles Kings uh, and the Colorado, or the Carolina Hurricanes in terms of building my team, the Hurricanes, and or my board, if you will. The Hurricanes and the Kings have always sort of lined up closer than most other teams with it, and I think they uh, both could, could be pretty happy about where they've drafted and the picks that they've turned into players relative to where they've picked all of that. Um, so there, there are probably a few teams that come to mind from around the league that I like. Um, uh, I think Philadelphia has mostly done a pretty good job in recent years. Uh, certainly we'll see what happens with Matt Bamichkov, but that could be a, another sort of a notch on their belt as well. Uh, if they can get them over here and convince them and all of that. Uh, but it's, a it's, it, it's, it's not easy. Uh, even if you do the best job, you're still, uh, the majority of your players that you draft across seven rounds are never going to play a game for you. So if, it's hard to be good at anything in any industry where your batting average is under under 300, under 400. And that's that's the reality of scouting in the NHL is uh, if you draft seven times a year, you're hoping to get two, maybe three players out of that. And that's a really good haul. So um, more often than not, the guy that you think has a chance doesn't have a chance or injuries get in the way or depth within your NHL organization uh, that plays a huge role I think that there are often players who would succeed uh, in one place and not succeed in the other just relative to the opportunities that are made available to them there is such a thing as having too many prospects I think we've seen that play out with the Los Angeles Kings who a few years ago were drafting 10 11 12 players a year then suddenly had too many prospects who were the sort of similar ages and then you get into a situation where you're trading a Brock Faber or losing a Tobias Bjornfoot to waivers or an Akil Thomas never gets to come up and play for your NHL organization because there are other players who are higher priority. And uh, so there's, there's also just context and luck of the draw in terms of opportunities and the right coach believing in you. And uh, there's so much that goes into a, a, a very good prospect becoming an NHL player. And the reality is that, there are also players, worse players who've become NHLers and better players who don't, right? Like it's, mm -hmm. it's not a science that way from development on and coaching on as well. So uh, there, are, there are layers and steps along the way that can get uh, barriers that can prevent, that present themselves and all of that. It's a, it's a very, very tricky process. And I think in hockey in particular, more than in baseball, where things like launch angle and bat speed and how hard a player throws, more than in the NBA where wingspan, we know what wingspan means for a player's ability to defend and, and challenge shots. Uh, there are real things, even the 40-yard dash for running backs in the NFL, there are real things in the other major pro sports that are tangible, trackable data points for, for clubs to base their decisions on that tend to actually be extremely projectable long-term. And that just does not exist in hockey. Uh, in any of, It doesn't exist in any of the testing that they do. Uh, none of it. So it's it's a it's a very being an NHL scout is a very very difficult job. Thanks for this, Scott Wheeler. Appreciate it very much. Cheers. All right, Scott Wheeler from the Athletic.
interestingly, uh, 40-yard dash, great for football running backs, also for producers of this show. Um, and I'll let you know that Declan scored out number one. He graded out number one of all the producers we've had. Uh, just ahead of Halley, but he did do it. Very well done. The Lowdown is brought to you by Wolf GMC. Check them out, wolfgmcbuick.com. We'll take a break. On the way, we'll be in conversation with Willie Ramirez from AP Sports about the Vegas Golden Knights. Their lineup is out. Aiden Hill starting more on the way. Lowdown with Low Tide on Sports 1440. It's the Lowdown on Twang Tuesday, Sports 1440, brought to you by Wolf GMC Buick. Check them out at wolfgmcbuick.com. This is a big game tonight. You know, in a long season of 82 games, this one is, for lots of different reasons, Vegas is, of course, uh, the team that knocked out the Oilers and won the Stanley Cup a year ago, but also the opportunity to win 17 in a row does not come along every day. So it's worth taking a trip and talking about Vegas Golden Knights, and we're joined now by Willie Ramirez from AP Sports. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. Now, did I get that song? Did I get that uh, that comeback song um, for the rejoin with because it's Willie Nelson? No, no, you got it because it's Twang Tuesday, and every Tuesday, Twang we, Tuesday. Oh, okay, we we play hammerhead rock and roll all day, all the time. But yeah, we Tuesdays we slow it down because uh, I'm old. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so how is Vegas? Must be nuts right now. Vegas is absolutely – Vegas is already like a 12 on a scale of 1 to 10 as far as the electricity, obviously. Vegas is like a 20. Vegas is Vegas, is Vegas on steroids right now with uh, Super Bowl week upon us. And every other entity that has events here having something this week. I mean, we're talking – like last night was NFL opening night. I was there for that, um, for media night, if you will. And, of course, the uh, the one thing that Associated Press asked me to do was talk to Travis Kelsey about who? His girlfriend. <laughs> um, tonight we have Golden Knights with Edmonton looking to tie an unbelievable record. Uh, Thursday, top-ranked boxing is having a fight with Tia Fimo. Uh, Friday and Saturday, Dana White has his two entities going with Power Slap, the first-ever public event, because it's always been by invite only. Saturday is UFC Fight Night, and then Sunday the game. And then Monday we come out of Super Bowl week with a Golden Knights game. Man. So it is absolutely wild what has taken place this week in Las Vegas. A place that I've been to, uh, you have to remember, since 1972. So I remember when the biggest thing, you know, back in the 70s was, oh, who's playing at Caesars and who's playing at uh, the Sands and who's playing at the MGM? Oh, and the Runner Rebels are playing at the Las Vegas Convention Center. Yeah. Now, I remember the first time I went to Vegas, I got to, I got a ticket to see the Runner Rebs, and I was thrilled. And I also walked the strip, <laughs> and it was great. But yeah. it's a whole new level now. Vegas is like a different stratosphere, uh, obviously. And uh, it's good to see because, you know, a lot of can- Canada can overwhelm Vegas at times. And, and I think they might be doing that with the order game tonight. Um one thing that's always kind of bugged me, and I'm glad that you were were on press row uh, and talking uh, about the, the to the players. People, people are always saying, "Well, why are they asking that question?" But this is an opportunity where I think the the um, the Super Bowl is such a big deal that it it kind of transcends just the sports pages. So, like, I would have been mad at you if you didn't ask about Taylor Swift. That's just me. But is right. it from the point of view of of because the bottom line is that you are a reporter and you're a writer and you're a columnist and all of those things. But the bottom line is to get the thing that people are interested in. So if you don't ask that question, then I like I think you're there. You have to ask the question. 
Right. And, and last night was really about the, the, the sideshow, the media circus, the, you know, you have uh, Guillermo out there from Jimmy Kimmel, right? You got the, you got carrot top asking questions. You got the young kid, Jeremiah, who was asking for NFL network. So that's, this is for the public. Like last night was for the public, the fun, the, if you will, the Swifties, right? The, the people that are new to football, the people that may have jumped on this year, the people that don't, they want to know what everybody's, you know, what, what's the last food that you want to eat if you're on a deserted island? What, what would you be if you were an anime character? I mean, those are the kinds of questions. <laughs> Why? Because today, tomorrow, and Thursday are the availabilities with every single player and every single coach at the team hotel for the actual working press. Like, all those gimmicky, um, they're going to, thinking they have the pass, the game week, uh, the, you know, the week of the game media pass, but th- now is when the serious questions come out and what you're talking about. How are you going to stop Patrick Mahomes? How are you going to slow down Brock Purdy? How are you going to slow down Kansas City's ne- newfound defense? So this is today, tomorrow, and Thursday, the availabilities at the team hotels are a lot different than that opening night where it becomes a big show for the NFL Network and, 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 and all the other you know, media outlets that are out there asking those kinds of questions to have some fun and keep the fans, like I said, those new fans and, and everybody else um, entertained. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait. Willie Ramirez, our guest from AP Sports. Let's switch over to Vegas. The last time we saw them, they were playing Detroit, and everybody was getting ready to you know have a, what felt like a 50-day layoff. Uh, I, I yeah. have a feeling tonight Vegas is a big game team. They're up. They obviously won the Stanley so they can get up for big games. I think the autos will see Vegas's best tonight. Do you agree? They, you know, I, I actually do think that, um, you know, I've always been, I've always said, like, I, I would just compare it. Like, I feel like Winnipeg and Pittsburgh, I looked at that game tonight from a Vegas standpoint, I, I do write some betting analysis. And I was looking at that one where I thought Winnipeg is going to be an advantage in that game because, um, I, I'm never high on teams at home coming out of a long break or a bye week because they become too relaxed, right? You get home with the wives, you're home with the girlfriends, you're home with the kids. You, 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 a team that's going on the road out of a break, they immediately are on business mode. I don't know if that's the situation with this roster. Number one, because of the way that the Golden Knights have sort of trudged through the first part of the season with injuries. You know, they went through a stretch where they lost four in a row in a brutal road trip. Um, and ended up losing six to seven, and it's it's been kind of tough. They closed the first half of the season out well, winning five of seven games and lost in overtime as a starter road trip in New Jersey, and they closed that road trip to end the first half of the season in Detroit. But this is a team of veterans. It is a team. They're, they're missing Jack Eichel, obviously the cornerstone of the offense, but they do have a lot of. They're expected to have William Carlson back. And you're right. I think that because of the way the first half of the season went. I think that they're going to want to come out of this particular break skating hard. The fact that they're playing Edmonton and the fact that you're talking about a 16-game win streak, I think it's going to drive them even more. I think we're going to be in store for a game tonight. Um, It's going to be really dependent. I think the break could be a hindrance to Edmonton because you're on this roll. You're on this run. You're moving. You know, the motivation, the momentum, everything that's flowing, you sort of cut it off. And some guys are, you know, they're back home relaxing. Connor McDavid's having fun at the skills competition. And this defense, you know, you talk about Edmonton and this high-scoring, high-flying team. This was a team that during the 16-game winning streak is allowing 1.5 goals per game. Leads the league in that span since December 21st. 
can it maintain and pick back where it left off playing at the defending Stanley Cup champs against a division rival? I think it pressures on Edmonton more so than Vegas here. Uh, Aiden Hill obviously playing at ridiculous levels and really a key story for uh, Golden yeah. Knights in the last 12 months, absolutely for he, sure. Uh, he's he's the starter tonight? He is He is going to be a net tonight. He's been playing incredible, uh, incredible hockey since he came out of the injury. Um, and if you look at what he did last year, right, he, he was hit or miss because Logan Thompson was the all-star goalie for this team. So the reality is, He's only played 17 games this season, um, but last year he played 27 games. The year before that, 25 games. He's become accustomed to sort of just making the best out of his time in net. 12-2-2 with a 1.94 goals against average, uh, .936 save percentage. Um, and Hill, he, there's just there's something about him that – he gets up for the moments when you sort of think that he's up against it and he could fold, yeah, especially coming out of the injury. He was gone for so long that he was expected to come back. Well, then there was a hiccup, and, well, he just didn't look right. We didn't understand what Cat, Bruce Cassidy's explanation was. But then ever since then, he's been fine. Um, now, he has faced the Oilers three times in his career. He's 0-1-1. He's allowed six goals. He has a 2.62 goals against average. Uh, 0.889 save percentage. So I do have to wonder if this could be, you know, a spot where he takes his lumps. It's it, 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 it's all. I I really think it, it it's going to be dependent on Vegas's forwards and the lines that they put out there, especially with William Carlson back. How they break down. There's been some hot um, line combinations, but without Jack Eichel, they're doing some shuffling with Carlson coming back in. So against what Edmonton was doing defensively during this win streak. And what Vegas' four uh, centers, their four centermen, how they can skate against Edmonton and challenge that defense is going to take some pressure off of Aiden Hill. So I think it's a collective effort tonight. There's not really one area you could say, this is how Vegas is going to win. It's going to take a collective effort, and they have to attack Edmonton's defense. Uh, final question. I can't let you go without asking about Keegan Colasar. I remember him in dub, in the WHL, and he was a, maybe a late developing player. I know he was a third round pick, but they kept him uh, in the in the in juniors, and he played a little bit in the AHL. He ends up going to uh, Vegas Golden Knights uh, for a second round pick. Yep. And what I love about him is that he is like he is a all he's a load, but he's also a right. guy who can can help in possession, and, and I think he's he's a prototypical fourth-line guy or depth-line guy who can not just hold his own but but do some damage physically, like tire a team out, and also outscore. 100%. And Keegan, you got to remember, Keegan's been one of the – he's been there since kind of the beginning. I remember him, the very first development camp, when the Golden Knights, you know, started their very first campaign. So he's been around. He's been a part of this organization for a long time, along with guys like Zach Whitecloud. You know, they've been around. And you, you nailed it. He, you know, I think Keegan Colasar, people got the wrong idea and thought that he was going to take over for Ryan Reeves and being the enforcer and being more involved in that aspect of the game. And I think at the beginning he sort of took that role on, you know, subconsciously wondering if that's what he was supposed to do. But he's developed into the perfect fourth-line guy, as you said, where he can – he can tire guys out. He can extend the opposition's line time on the ice, give them time. If he's the last guy off the ice during the line change, it could force fresh legs from the top line 
to go against the tired forward line that can't get off from the opposition. He does a good well of uh, a good job of maintaining the puck against the boards. He can, um, you know, and he's really developed his game, maybe not as a scorer, but as a facilitator at the other end. And if he can get through the neutral zone and make things happen, he has developed his own little style of trying to facilitate the offense. And then when you least expect it, Keegan Colasar can show up for you, either serving an apple or getting it in the net. Beautiful. Love it. Thank you. Enjoy the game tonight. Enjoy the week, sir. All right. Thank you. All right. That was good stuff. Willie Ramirez from AP Sports. We'll take a break. On the way in hour number two, Daniel Nugent-Bowman. And I've got the lineups for both teams tonight on the way. Low down with low tide on Sports 1440. Time for an update. This is a Sports 1440 update. And for your Sports 1440 update, brought to you by Tommy Guns. The unique lounges and casual setting makes it easy for anyone to rock a new look and get the best hotel shave experience in Canada, hands down. Book now at TommyGuns.com. Eight games tonight in the NHL, including, of course, the Edmonton Oilers with a shot at history, a chance to tie the all-time win streak record there in Vegas against the Golden Knights and puck drop for that one. 8 p.m., and it will be Stuart Skinner in the starter's net. News around the NHL as the Chicago Blackhawks will host the 2025 NHL Winter Classic at Wrigley Field against the St. Louis Blues, and the Jets have activated Mark Shifley off IR with the expectation he will play tonight against Pittsburgh. Seven games in the NBA tonight. It all gets going with Houston in Indiana at 5. Also on the schedule, Orlando and Miami at 5.30, Minnesota and Chicago at 6, and Milwaukee and Phoenix at 8. News around the NBA as Philadelphia 76ers star Joel Embiid underwent a left knee procedure this morning and will be reevaluated in approximately four weeks. Also, Atlanta's Trey Young and Toronto's Scotty Barnes have replaced Joel Embiid and Julius Randle on the NBA's Eastern Conference All-Star team. And finally, news in the CFL is Canadian running back Brady Oliveira has re-signed with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers on a two-year contract. Offensive tackle Jamarcus Hedrick is set to sign a two-year deal with the Rough Riders in a deal that will make him the highest-paid American offensive tackle in the league. And the Rough Riders, still active, are also signing free agent running back A.J. Ouellet. That's going to do it for us. This has been a Sports 1440 update. I'm Declan Kruger.